You're listening to the Jubilee Montreal podcast. Jubilee Montreal is a Christian church located in downtown Montreal that exists to share the good news as a spiritual family for holistic transformation. For more information on Jubilee Montreal, visit us online at www.jblmontreal.org. You can turn in your notes or your book to the chapter on salvation. Today is the kind of summit of this sermon series. It's the, it's the thing that we're going toward, and after this, everything's going to be about explaining what we've talked about, kind of. Not that it's not important, but... Last week, we examined how God made us for relationship with him and others. It's in your notes, I think. But we chose self-centeredness, okay? So if you weren't here last week, I, I highly recommend that you go back and listen to it. I recommend that you look at the book. It's A lot of this stuff is paradigm shifting. The way that you thought about repentance might not be the way that the, the Bible talks about repentance. We chose self-centeredness, even though God has made us for relationship. Repentance is choosing trust and love instead of independence. That's what it means, choosing trust and love. To repent is a relational idea, so it's not about feeling bad about something or trying harder. It's not about feeling bad about something or trying harder. There's something more profound going on when we're talking about repentance. When, we, when, we say, when I say I'm repenting, what it means is I'm going to choose relationship with God and relationship with others over any other agenda, any other thing I could choose. That's what it means to repent. So again, we looked at how God made us for relationship in the beginning, just to make it clear. He made us for relationship with him and others, but we chose self-centeredness instead, and repentance is the way to restore that relationship. It is choosing love and trust with God and others. In your notes, if the story ended here, Christianity would be like a religion or a business. We try to, we, we, where we try to follow rules to get what we want. You get that? It'd be like a religion, which is we'll talk about quite a few times today. It will be like just trying to follow rules, trying to do certain things to get what we want. It's easy to think, for example... That if I follow Jesus, like I started following Jesus, I'll mention this again later, I started following Jesus and it was all a gift. But from here on out, it's up to me. It's up to me to make things happen. It's up to me to do it. Repentance can begin to feel like that. I've got to work hard, make the best of it, and hope it works, hope I'm right. And in the end, what I'm really hoping for is that God likes me, that somehow he noticed that I did it. This is not Christianity. It's the way of the world in your notes. If we try to lose weight... It's all related, okay? If we try to lose weight, get a raise, resolve a conflict, raise children, improve ourselves, get to heaven, rules are the way forward. That's what we're talking about right now for a few minutes, the idea of rules. What do we do when there's a problem we're facing? I want you to think about that for yourself. When you're facing a problem, what do you do? A serious problem, a problem that you, you, you want to solve, you want to get a job, you want to have a better relationship with a spouse or a partner, you want to overcome an anger problem, typically what we do, whether we call it that or not, is we create a rule to try to overcome it. Anger is the easiest example. I have a serious anger problem, and the way that I get over it is by creating a rule, and the rule goes like this. You say something to me, and I get angry, and before I open my mouth, I'm going to count to 10 in my mind, backwards, and hopefully... By the time I get from 10 to 1, something has happened and nothing's going to come out of my mouth anymore. We'll get to that. <laughs> the idea, 
The idea behind it is that if we have a problem, the solution is always going to be something that we do. Okay? It might sound like there's nothing wrong with that. Do you think that way? I think as a parent, uh, if we have children, we, we ask ourselves, how are we going to make sure that we raise the child correctly? Right? How are we going to make sure that we have a great child? And what we do is then we create rules, whether we've said them out loud or not, and we make sure that we do certain things, like we read them a story every night, like we put them in the best program, that we find them in the best school, that we do whatever the rules that we've read, the myriad of books have told us, are the right things to do. And if we do everything correctly, it should work out. And if it doesn't work out, then we blame somebody, maybe ourselves, but we blame somebody. Most of the time when we have a problem, the first thing that goes through our head is, what do I have to do to change it? Okay? It's normal. What do I have to do to get a better outcome than what I'm thinking is going to happen? If you go for counseling, for example, what they're going to do is they're going to break down the problem that you come with into a series of steps, choices that you can make to get to the result that you desire. In your notes, at one level, this is fine. Rules describe our responsibilities. Does that make sense? When you, when you say a rule, what you're doing is you're saying, this is my responsibility to do it, which is true. And the rule is your way of saying that. It's like your way of getting there. In a way, there's nothing wrong with it. You know, the desire to not be angry or to choose somebody out is a positive thing. The, the desire to raise your children well is a positive thing. Your, your desire, even in your notes before, to, to improve yourself, to resolve a conflict, these aren't bad things in your notes. However, rule-based thinking doesn't lead to relationship. This is a paradigm shift again. It doesn't lead to relationship because rules create a gap between us and God and others. For example, I must do X before God will accept me. That's a rule. As soon as you create a rule, you just created a gap in relationship. If you have a rule, this is what it means. If I, if I create a rule, it means that I'm here and, and you're there. And for me to get to you, I have to fulfill this rule first, and then I can be close to you. In some sense, it feels like there's nothing wrong. The only thing that's wrong with rules is that they destroy relationship. And if that's what God is about, relationship, then we have to question whether rules have anything to do with it at all. In your notes, if Christianity isn't about trying harder to keep the rules, what is it about? In your notes, simply put, which we're going to unpack, trust, trust or trusting in Jesus. Christianity is about Jesus filling the gap between God and us. It is not about us getting to God. It is him coming to us and giving us what rule-keeping never can. Now, I think that when I read that, I think that's a pretty common way of understanding it, but I don't know that we, have, that we live that out, that we believe it in our heart, that we've internalized it, that it's how we operate, even if we believe it to be true. So rules are gaps. The more rules that we live by, the greater the distance between God and other people. If that's true, that's pretty funny. The more rules I live by, the farther I will be from God. Not the more things I do wrong. The more rules I live by, the further I will be from God and the further I will be from other people. There needs to be a better way of living that is not simply about keeping rules. In your notes, it's under salvation. Okay, that's what today is about. To explain how Jesus enables us to have a relationship with God, we must understand something about relationships. 
I don't know how you would define a healthy person, okay? You try to come up with what, what is a healthy person, like a, a person that's well, um, well adjusted, thank you. A person that's well adjusted, a person that's generally well. A healthy person, for our purposes here, is a person that's able to do two things. That's it. All right, if you want to be healthy, you just have to do two things. Receive love and give love. That's all, that's ever, that's all that ever is going on in a, in a relationship. It's all that's ever really going on in life that matters. You can tell that you're healthy if you can receive well. What does that mean, receive well? It usually looks like gratitude. It looks like a sense of gratitude, like a feeling of gratitude. And it looks like you can give well, which looks like, feels like, sounds like generosity. Gratitude and generosity. That's what healthy people are like. Now, there can be more to it. There can be more to describing somebody that's healthy, but those two things summarize it. Can, are you a person that can receive love, and are you a person that can give love? So, we'll have a healthy relationship with God. Please listen to this. We'll have a healthy relationship with God if we can receive love for him, from Him and if we can give love to Him. An unhealthy relationship always emphasizes one or the other. It's often not that it doesn't do anything. An unhealthy relationship often emphasizes one to the death of the other. If you have a relationship with God where all you're ever doing, listen to this, is receiving love from him, but never giving love, is that healthy? What does that look like? It looks like a lot of stuff we do. It looks like, and I don't want to box anything in, but just to try to make it make sense, because we're all guilty of these things, lest we think we're not. If I, if I receive love, but I always downplay giving love, it's going to look like I'm all about kind of like sitting in a posture of worship receiving. It's going to look like I'm always wanting prayer. Like I'm always wanting to just kind of not do anything, okay? In a good way. But just receive. Is it, unhe- is it unhealthy? Is, or is it healthy? Is it unhealthy? It's actually called self-absorption. But we put Christian language on it. If we have a relationship with God where all we're ever doing is serving him, loving him, honoring him, worshiping in a different sense, serving, being the one to do it, is that healthy? If that's all we ever do, no. And that's called religion. A healthy person has a relationship with God where there's the receiving and the giving of love that are balanced, that play off each other, that are full. In your notes, these two qualities meet our two core needs. Receiving unconditional love makes us secure, and giving unconditional love makes us significant. This, this little thing in your notes, we're going to talk about significance and security, and it's easy, I think, because I've sat through stuff like this, to just kind of like, they're just words, let it go. But I think that this, this issue of talking about our problems in terms of security and significance will change the way that you think about life. I'm, I don't mean to downplay, I'm not... I don't even mean to, what am I saying? I'm not trying to hype it up, thanks. <laughs> it, sometimes we feel like, I, I can't quite nail down what my issue is, right? Like, I just don't feel well. Things aren't going well, or it's like a specific sin or a specific thing. But there's always something else going on, something that's more simple, which is good news, because it's not so, like, ephemeral. It's not so hard to find out. There's always two things going on. Security and significance. Receiving unconditional love is what makes us secure. 
and giving unconditional love makes us significant. God has created all of humanity with two core needs. So think about this for you. I challenge you to accept it for yourself. He's created you with two core needs, the need of security and the need of significance. Security is the need to be unconditionally loved and accepted. And significance is our desire to have meaning and purpose in life. I think that most people are kind of aware of one and unaware of the other. Or they don't really have an issue with one, maybe, and they have an issue with the other. So like for me, I would like to tell myself that I'm pretty secure, but I have a deep need for significance. And I see it all through my life. I can talk about issues, I can talk about things, but behind them is a craving for significance, a need for significance. And for many people, it's a need for security. And so they go and they try to find it anywhere they can, and they'll do anything to feel secure, to feel loved and accepted, or to find meaning and find purpose. I, I think a lot of depression, I'm not talking about serious clinical depression, but just being down, is found from the realization that we don't have these things. I feel like I'm not secure and I don't know where to find it. And I feel insignificant and I fear that I will never feel significant. Most of our decisions in life are trying to move ourselves toward these two goals. It actually, when I begin to think about it, it feels funny because people are complicated, but I think we think we're more complicated than we are. And that we're, we're, we're moving through life, saying things with our mouth and doing things, but in reality, we're just looking for a place to be secure and we're just looking for a place to be significant. And we call it a relationship, or we call it grad school, or we call it traveling, or we call it money. But we're just looking for security and significance. We want to be unconditionally loved and accepted, and we want to have meaning and purpose. We want to do things that matter. These are not bad things, by the way. He created us with two core needs. We want to do things that matter, and we want to be loved just the way we are. These desires then guide our life they're actually the thing that are propelling us forward. In your notes, how does Jesus satisfy our core relational needs? What does Jesus have to do with it? He gives us two gifts. In your notes, we're going to look at Acts chapter 2 in just a moment, but before we do that, I want you to consider something. Many people view Christianity like this, and I alluded to it just a minute ago. It's a free gift. So it's said like this, Christianity is a free gift that you need to spend the rest of your life paying back. Some of us might not think we have an issue with this, but this is our time in the year to talk about it, okay? So I'm going to talk about it. Christianity is like this. It's a free gift that we then spend the rest of our life paying back. It goes like this. You know, Jesus died for my sins, and now what I have to do is show gratitude and devotion by working hard for the rest of my life, by falling in, li by falling in line by doing the right thing, by fulfilling obligations. If we think that, feel that on any level, we do not understand salvation. Salvation has nothing to do with Jesus did something for us, and now we're doing something. The past two weeks have been leading up to this moment. So source and repentance, again, if you haven't looked at it, look at it. Those two weeks lead up to this moment, and the next few weeks we'll be unpacking this moment. So if there's ever a moment to listen, I guess this is the one. This is the central thing to uh, transformations, really. The transformations as a course, as a series, is, is, is this moment in Acts chapter 2, 38, and the idea or the, the, the purpose, the theme of salvation in, this, in the Bible. Acts chapter 2, verse 38, repent 
and be baptized. I talked about baptism at the beginning. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for, and then he says two things, for the forgiveness of your sins, and it's easy to miss that this is a second one, and you will receive, a second thing, the gift of the Holy Spirit, forgiveness and the gift of the Holy Spirit. If you summarize what salvation is about, it's about this. This is what we're about. This is how transformation works. Okay, when we try to like, we talk about transformation, holistic transformation a lot, and I am keenly aware that that means nothing to many people. It's, it's nebulous, you know? What does that look like? Um, but it looks like this. If you want to get to transformation, you help somebody gain these two things. And I'm talking even about transformation in society and social justice. Social justice doesn't work without forgiveness and empowerment. Okay? If you summarize what salvation is about, it's about the forgiveness of sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit. Okay? For me, for you, for, for people on the streets, if they could experience forgiveness and experience the gift of the Holy Spirit, what the scriptures mean by that, Everything would change, really. It might be little by little. It might be in a, in, a, in a moment. But everything would change for that person. And everything would change for the world around them as well. In your notes, forgiveness, number one. When Jesus paid for our sin and our failures on the cross, he filled the eternal gap between God and us, removing all the barriers to our adoption. Romans, uh, sorry, Titus chapter 3, verse 4 to 5, and then you can look at Romans 5, 8 on your own. When God, our Savior, revealed his kindness and love, he saved us, salvation, okay? He saved us, not because of the righteous things we had done, the rules we had kept, okay? The righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He washed away our sins, giving us a new birth and new life through the Holy Spirit. You see it, Titus and... Luke, who wrote Acts, agree. Forgiveness bases our relationship with God. Get this. Forgiveness bases our relationship with God on his gift instead of our performance. I know most of us might believe that already, but stay with me. It bases our relationship. Our relationship is built upon a foundation of radical forgiveness. It has nothing to do with performance. If we don't have a relationship with God, so now, today, think about your life. If you don't have a relationship with God that is based on forgiveness, then it means that it's based on performance. It's one or the other. Which is, in performance, is based on the keeping of rules. And if you remember rules, we can never get to God by keeping rules. If I could just, and this is what it sounds like, and people don't say this out loud usually because they don't like to be judged, but this is what we think. If I could just be nicer, if I could read a bit more of the Bible, if I could pray longer, maybe 24 hours, if I could, if I could pray with more people, if I could go to another conference, that's what I'm missing. If I could do that, I'm sure then I would feel the connection that I've been longing for. You feel that? It, everybody has a different thing, you know? Like for you, it might not be a conference or something, but there's something that we think that if we do it, that will lead to more connection. And I know there's all kinds of like arguments that rise up about like, well, don't you have to pray? <laughs> if you never pray, would you feel close to God? And if you never are a part of community, won't you never feel close to God? But this is not the point. The point is the foundation of our relationship with God. Connection does not come through anything that we do. The remarkable reality of forgiveness. This is it. It's hard to believe. That's why Christianity is a risk. It's not, the good news is 
definitely hard to accept. The remarkable reality of forgiveness is that every barrier between us and God has been thoroughly and completely removed. There is nothing standing in the way of intimacy. Religion is trying to get to God. Christianity is experiencing the reality of God here and now. Religion, so this is why religion, Christianity, as we talk about it, and religion as it's talked about in the world popularly, are not the same thing. Religion is about how you get to God. Christianity is experiencing the reality of God here and now for yourself. Automatically. Before you do anything. That is a very different thing. Most people treat Christianity, though, people that aren't Christians and people that are Christians, treat Christianity like it's any other religion. Where on any day, we're hoping that we might get closer to, the God, to God by just being a little better or doing something a little better. But it's exhausting. And it will never lead to transformation, which is what we're about, which is why we're talking about this. Wouldn't it be remarkable if your relationship with God was not, didn't feel like a reward for something? that it was just a present reality that you experienced. I'm telling you, you know what you will experience, if you will feel if you experience that, the thing called gratitude, which will not come if it has anything to do with what you did to make it happen. It would radically change the way that we live. What this means, theologically, what this means, is that our, re- is that our relationship with God is able to be eternally secure, if you've ever heard this idea. It's why my relationship with God cannot be taken away because it's a gift that I received, not something I earned. If it's a gift, if it's not a gift, sorry, if it is a gift, I can't unearn it because I never earned it in the first place. I never pretended to. If it's a performance, if it's based on rules, then I can get fired like any other job. I probably will. But if it's a gift, I can't unearn a gift. And that's what makes it eternally secure. I didn't earn it and I can't unearn it. Back to your notes. Because Christ's death satisfied God's justice, our pardon is legally and eternally secure. His resurrection guarantees that even death cannot separate God and I, God and you. I mean, this is what death and eternal life and resurrection and heaven, this is what it's about, is it's the connection that God has formed with me cannot be broken. And even my physical death, which seems like it might end something, ends nothing in my relationship with God. In fact, it only increases it. The forgiveness of God is like this. Imagine that you're pulled over by a police officer, okay? And you definitely were speeding, like there's no getting around it. And the the guy pulls you over and he says, you know, I'm just in a good mood today. And so I'm going to say... Uh, you can go. You were obviously over the limit, but you can go. I'm not going to write you a ticket, okay? Now, bear with me, because this is a silly example. You hate police officers, okay? You hate them. Even when that guy lets you off, you, you just think they're, like, you have no respect for them at all. And so as he's walking away, you say something out your window about him being weak, okay? But he hears you, which you didn't mean to happen. And he comes back over and he says, forget it. Here's your ticket, full amount. What happened? At first, you were forgiven, right? At first, he offered you a type of forgiveness, the type of forgiveness we usually, that what we usually think about with forgiveness. He's letting something slide, right? But what happens when you show that you can't follow through on your side, which is what he wanted, respect, gratitude for what he had done, 
He takes it right back. That's not forgiveness at all, even though it's the way we think about it. Forgiveness is not just letting go of something. Just kind of uh, forget about it. It doesn't matter. This is forgiveness. The cop walks over to your car and says, look, I have to give you a ticket. You're going, you know, 40 kilometers over the speed limit, and there's nothing I can do about it. You've got to have a ticket. He says, but in fact, for some reason, I really want to take care of this for you. And he pulls his wallet out of his pocket, and he takes the $250 out, that's your ticket, and he puts it with the ticket, and he just says, I'm going to pay it for you. Okay, I'm taking it back, and I'm going to pay it so you know it's paid. You got it? And I paid it. We cheapen the idea of forgiveness, where we think it's like, oh, it's all good. Don't worry about it, right? That that's what God's doing to us. It's good to just understand this for a second. That's what God did for me. He just said, ah, don't worry about it. I prayed the prayer. I did the thing or whatever. I said, I believe this stuff. And God said, don't worry about it. What forgiveness really means is that God is going to absorb the cost instead of me. Someone absorbs the cost. When justice, this is why, when justice is included and God is just, okay, he's merciful and he's just. When justice is included inside of forgiveness, it's legally binding and eternally secure. Because justice was satisfied in God's forgiveness, I'm eternally secure in the work of Jesus Christ and his death on the cross and his resurrection. In the story of the police officer, justice is done. The ticket was given. The ticket was paid. It just happens to be that the police officer paid for me. But he doesn't just wipe away the crime. He pays it himself. Mercy is not just a response of pity. It's that debt was paid by someone. And now, I'm with the one who paid my debt forever in relationship. Because God wanted a relationship with me. He paid my debt to draw me close. And now there's nothing that separates him from me. The first gift that we receive is salvation, is forgiveness. Number two, so you get that forgiveness. I mean, it's central. We maybe don't think about it much. Maybe you thought about it in the past. It's the foundation that a relationship with God is built upon. And you don't feel close to God, maybe, because you don't accept forgiveness. Maybe. Number two, the Holy Spirit. While forgiveness delivers me or you or us from the consequences of sin, okay, that is I'm not going to be punished for things I've done, even though I should be, God's Spirit enables us to fulfill our life purpose, which is to love God and others. If the good news of salvation ended with forgiveness, then it would be as if it's like this, as if God has a kingdom and I'm forgiven, so I walk up to the kingdom. And I can see inside. And he's like, come on in. You're forgiven. And I can't. Like, I can't make it over the door because I have no ability to stop sinning. <laughs> you see? I'm forgiven for sure, but I'm going into the kingdom that's like pure and I'm going to mess everything up because I have no power to overcome. And this is, I mean, this is the good news of the gospel that God does not expect us to overcome anything on our own. That's why it's not about being forgiven and now keeping rules. It's why the New Testament says, why, why, why did you start with grace and you've ended with works? Why have you messed it up? It's easy to believe in a way that I'm forgiven for the past. Hard, but easier. It's, it's harder to believe that everything that God expects of me, he's given me the ability and the power to do. That's difficult to embrace. God doesn't stop at forgiving us. He actually gives us the ability to do right. He gives us the ability to do right. doesn't just expect us to do right. He gives us the ability to do right, which is loving God and loving other people. 
in your notes. What does his power look like? First, it looks like transformed character. I can't overemphasize this part. The power, we're going to talk about the power of the Holy Spirit for a couple minutes. The power, whatever you believe about that, the power of the Holy Spirit, number one, is a transformed character. And if you can't get there, then there's, no, there's really no use in, in reading more. Galatians chapter 5, 22 to 23, the fruit of the Spirit, maybe you know this, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And we talked about this before, so I'll mention it briefly. It's easy to look at the fruit of the Spirit and then try to put them into practice, right? I think God understands. We, we try to do them, and, and I, like, I'm impatient. And that's, this is not an example. This is true. I'm impatient. And, and, but but a patience is a fruit of the Spirit, so I should be patient, right? And so I'm going to try to be patient, and so I have periods of time of impatience and moments of patience and periods of time of impatience and moments of patience. But that's not how you, that's not how you do it. Let's make it really simple. You don't, you can't be patient. You can't. Or maybe you can, but you can't, you have no self-control. I don't know. But you can't do it. The difference is that bearing fruit has nothing to do with like trying to bear fruit. Bearing fruit has to do with staying connected to the source like fruit on a tree grows by being on the tree. Jesus' example is meant to be ridiculously simple. Stay connected to the source. So for example, now when I'm impatient, my assumption is not this, which is what it usually is. It's not I need to create a new rule to help me be patient. I need to find a way to do this, to find a way to put something to practice that won't allow me to be impatient anymore. Instead, my assumption changes to, I guess I've not been close to the Father today. I guess I'm not connected to the source. We talked about the source in week one, but that changes everything. It might, and if, if you're a person that's like, I want, no, it doesn't help me because I want to know practically right now how to be patient, and a rule is going to help you do that. But in the long run, a rule will never change you. You'll be, you know, three years from now, you'll be asking me how to be patient again. Rules will not do it. You must find out how to stay connected to the source. So we don't need to try and produce fruit. What we need to do is remain in the presence of the Father. And so this is number one. What, what, what God does is he forgives us and he gives us the ability to have character. He gives us the ability to follow rules if there are rules. He gives us the, the ability to obey. Generally, we're not as interested in that part. What we're more interested in is the next part. It also looks like transformed ability. You can't have one without the other. You can't. You can read Romans 12, 6 to 8 on your own. We're going to look at another verse here. Sometimes grace is described as unmerited favor, which is true. Okay, grace, unmerited favor. But it's much more than that. It's more than mercy. It's the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit. Think about life as if it's a prism. Okay, you know what a prism is? Think about life as it's a prism and the Holy Spirit as if it's like a, a, a ray of white light. And as the, as, the, as the Holy Spirit goes through the prism, it refracts into like a, a rainbow of colors. This is, this is how it works. When God's Spirit comes into us, it refracts through us in a specific way. Maybe I'm blue. I don't know. That's funny. Sad. I'm just kidding. Um, so 
it refracts through Mark in a different way and Seb in a different way and Marilyn in a different way. It refracts through all of us in specific ways, but it's the Holy Spirit translated through us, our personality and our gifting and where we come from and how God uniquely wired us. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, 7 to 10. Now to each one, the manifestation of the Spirit, manifestation of the Spirit, okay, is given for the common good. We're not going to talk about that, but it's for the common good. It's not for me. To one, there is given through the Spirit the message of wisdom. And by the way, I'm only going to talk about one of these because it's misunderstood. But in your, in your book or in your notes, if you flip to the personal study part, there's a list of all these gifts that Paul mentions and an explanation of what they are. To another, the message of knowledge. To another, faith. To another, gifts of healing by that one spirit. To another, miraculous powers. To another, prophecy. To another, distinguishing between spirits. To another, speaking in different kinds of tongues. Tongues, by the way, understood often. There's two kinds of tongues in the scriptures. What he seems to be saying is verbally praising God with words that are not naturally understandable. Okay, Praising God with words that are not naturally understandable. Also of use in the New Testament is the gift of tongues where somebody stands up, usually when they're preaching, usually to a bunch of people that don't follow Jesus, and they're immediately able to be understood, it seems, in a language, in their own language. As if I'm up here speaking English and we have like 40 different languages, all of which I don't speak, and you all can understand what I'm saying. Okay, A different understanding of tongues, but both operating. God will give us, in your notes, the the will and the power to love him and others. This might be a different way of talking about gifts. God gives us the will, the desire, and the power, the ability to love him and others. How are we loving others is what the, the New Testament describes as spiritual gifts. It's not usually how they're used, not often how they're used, and it's not often how they're desired. The whole point that, that Paul is making in 1 Corinthians here is that they're all from the same spirit, meaning nothing is more important than anything else. They're all kind of like specific to a person, and they're all for the common good and nothing else, which assumes that you have character, okay? Um, in your... In your in your personal study, there's more about... It, the personal study, if you haven't done it, goes deeper into everything that we mention here, by the way, and it goes, it goes deeper into the Holy Spirit. I want to tell a little a personal story about how the, what it means that the Holy Spirit gives you ability. The whole point is that the Holy Spirit is giving you ability that you don't naturally have on your own, and this is just a little story that makes, that makes it somewhat clear. Uh, I became a Christian in a world where, in the world, it was my world, that that didn't believe actively, at least, in the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Um, and I, didn't, I didn't grow up as a Christian necessarily. I became a Christian a bit later, you know, as a teenager, and it, and it just wasn't. And I had no kind of help outside of that. And it was, it was meant well. It was trying to exegete the Bible and understand it. But I knew that out of everything I believed, that was a weak theological point. The problem was I didn't have any experience of spiritual gifts that were healthy. And I, I would say that a lot of it's not, actually. But I had, no, I had no example. And it wasn't until university in which I was far from my faith, but had decided to, to study the scriptures, to try to lose my faith, that at that point, I actually decided that I did. That this, not that I did, but that Paul for sure believed in the gifts of the Spirit, the early church, the, the example of the church after, until a certain point, which is not today's history lesson, but the gifts operate, and it's the assumption the hard thing is to separate misunderstanding from the truth of Scripture. But I had come to this place 
where I believe theoretically, theologically, that God wanted to, God, God was on the move on the earth and spiritual gifts were a part of that. If not, it, a lot of the Bible didn't make sense anymore and actually was irrelevant, a lot of the stories. And I, I came here to this city and I became a part of what is now this church and I wrestled with this for years. Uh, not just spiritual gifts, but all of the miraculous. And I wanted to believe, but I didn't want to believe in something that was unhealthy and I had no good example. And long story short, I went to, I went to a conference, sometimes conferences help, in, uh, in, in Western Canada. And, uh, and I, I mean, this was not like the first time I had been working through this for a long time. And an old man sat up at the front. I mean, he had to sit down, for example. And he shared, and it was in brokenness and humility that he talked about the power of the Holy Spirit. And I thought, that's what it is. Paul is a broken guy that believes in the power of the Holy Spirit, but often when you see the power of the Holy Spirit, it's like hyped and show and fake. And so when I saw that, I thought, that's what I want. And so, you know, we prayed, and I didn't feel, you know, you pray for this. You ask God for his power. And I didn't feel anything, and um, you know what happened is that what I really desired when I, when I wanted the gifts of the Spirit, what I really wanted is I wanted to see a movement happen. I, when I looked at the scriptures, that's what I saw. It's like, I wanted to see everyday people. It's what we do everyday people empowered by the gospel, empowered by the spirit to go out into the world and transform things. Everybody, not like paid ministry people. And I had, I, I had those desires, but very little experience of that. And after this little Holy Spirit thing, they like get everybody into groups and they're like, we're going to go and do like bold evangelism. It's called, if you know this, you know, share the gospel on the campus. Not just like do, do a survey, like find somebody, strike up a conversation, tell them about Jesus, help them follow him. And I was like, <laughs> I'm working through too many things right now. I don't need to work through evangelism right now. But I went, and I go, and I have, I have had, lot of, at that point in my life, this is years back now, lots of conversations with people about the gospel. Numerous, you know, lots at that point. Never experienced someone coming to know Jesus. Always experienced, like, you know, not interested. And I had believed that people weren't interested. So I have this Holy Spirit thing, you know, nothing, nothing crazy. Uh, but but I, had, I had surrendered, I think is the point. I had now surrendered to God as the Holy Spirit to just give me gifts if he wanted to for his purpose. I go out and we talk to people and I find a, a guy sitting at a table alone and I go up to him, no expectation at all. And I go and I just do the thing. Like there's a guy that's with me, he's kind of just watching and I have this little test, you know, to strike up a conversation and I strike up a conversation with him and I go through this whole thing, sharing the gospel with him talking, you know, do you believe? And I get to this point where the conversation is supposed to end, right? And I'm just like, so would you like to follow Jesus? And like, and he's like, yeah, I would. And I was like, I just froze. <laughs> and I, and the guy, the guy next to me is like, what? you know, like, <laughs> and I'm like, and, and for the next like 15 minutes, I tried to talk him out of it because <laughs> I was certain that he did not understand what I was saying. And, and he was new to Canada. I felt like his, maybe it was my English that like we weren't connecting and he wasn't at understanding what I was asking of him actually. He was being polite or something. So we go through it again and again. And I said, I have nothing else. I can't, I can't do anything else. The guy wants to believe, so he's going to believe. <laughs> and this was after, and it was just a connection for me. This was after I surrendered. And that moment looked nothing like what I had considered unhealthy gifts or something. I don't know if, if, by the way, if that's not relevant to you, don't worry about it, but that was my experience. 
um, I had reasons to believe that charismatic, as it's called, Christianity, like, wasn't good news to me. But as I surrendered to the Holy Spirit, I saw evangelism completely differently. Like, there was power. I was saying the same stuff. Same stuff. And this guy was so hungry, he wanted to believe. It's just an example of the fact that 2 Peter 1.3, his divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness. And I knew in that moment that it wasn't me. Like, I didn't do anything different. No one just equipped me in a super special way to share the gospel again. I just went and the Holy Spirit was working and somehow my surrendering to him, not keeping rules, had brought us close. That now that God was active in what I was doing with him. We have everything we need, this is the other side of ability, not just spiritual gifts. We have everything we need to overcome temptation. There's nothing else we need to do first. I am with him right now. This is another kind of thing that's hard to believe. I don't need anything else to be able to overcome temptation. I have everything I need. Repentance, back to repentance for a second, is like a marriage vow. Marriage vows, it's the desire to do well. It's not the, the reality of doing well. Weddings are usually pretty happy, as they should be. But in, in a, when you get married, it's, you, you believe you will do well. But why wouldn't you? You're getting married. You're super happy, usually, you know? But the vows that you say are the desire to do well. They're not the reality of doing well. What Jesus does, repentance is like the vow, okay? What Jesus does is he fulfills our vow. I make a vow, I repent, he fulfills my repentance, he fulfills my marriage vow. He says, I know you want to be with me, and I want to be with you, but I know that you can't. I know that you can't actually do it. So let me do you a favor, just let me fulfill the vow on your behalf. I forgive you for all you've done wrong, and I'll give you my grace so that you can love me in return. In your notes, Christ fulfills the two sides of repentance. God's forgiveness forgives our sin, which makes us eternally secure, and God's spirit, God's spirit or his grace, by the way, this is what it means. That's why we're talking about grace is not just unmerited favor. Even the word charismatic or charismata or char- charis is the word grace. Charis, if you know charis, means grace. And charismata are the, are the gifts of grace, charismatic is my Greek ends there, walking in the great, walking in the gifts. I didn't look it up, it's just from my mind. Jesus saves us from loneliness, okay? Say with me, Jesus saves us from, oh, by the way, that means God giving us grace does not just mean that he gives me favor, it means he gives me ability. That's what it means, the word charis. Jesus saves us from loneliness or insecurity and irrelevance, insignificance. That's what, by the way, they feel like. Insecurity feels like loneliness, and insignificance feels like irrelevance. If you fear loneliness, it's a sign of insecurity. If you fear insignificance, or if you fear irrelevance, it's a sign of insignificance. When Jesus himself is our satisfaction, sin loses its appeal. We fall into sin, not because we aren't trying hard enough to keep the rules, but because we haven't understood how our Father fulfills the desires of our heart. So do you hear that? I'm just going to say it one more time and we'll keep going. We fall into sin. So whether it's you or you're like helping somebody in your micro church or somebody you know, and you're trying, you, you, know you, you want to help them, they're struggling, and it's, it's such a temptation to give them a rule. I don't know if you've experienced this yet, but this is a place where we hope that everybody can move into a place of leadership 
not of like status, but of empowerment to go and, and be and do. And when you're doing that, whether it's somebody that's really broken, that's not a part of your micro church, or somebody that is, that's just struggling, like we all do, there's a temptation to just give them, give them the answer. Give them the rule, and they want it. That makes it doubly hard. Give them the answer. Give them the rule. Show them what to do so that they can overcome this. But we never, like what we're about is the transformation of the person. Not that things look better right now, but the transformation of the person. We fall into sin not because we aren't trying hard enough to keep the rules, but because we have not understood how God fulfills the desires of our heart, our desire for security and our desire for significance. And that's hard. There is no easy answer to that. But walking with somebody through that helps. The security and significance that you're looking for are fully met in what Jesus has done for you. And if you feel the need to run after something else to fulfill those needs, it's simply a sign that you don't understand what's being offered to you in Jesus yet. Choose him and those needs will be fulfilled in a way that does not alienate you, but draws you close to God and each other. That's the problem, by the way, because you could try to find security and significance elsewhere. You can. What will happen, though, is you might find it a degree of security and significance or a mirage of security and significance. But what will happen is you'll be alienated, as we talked about last week, from God and other people. So in your notes, receiving salvation. How do we receive Jesus' gift of salvation then? Salvation, forgiveness, the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. How do we receive it? Mark 1.15, the time has come, he said. The kingdom of God is near. Therefore, repent and believe the good news. Repentance, this is what we looked at last week, takes responsibility for our part, choosing. And belief trusts God to do his. We only talked about repentance last week. That's belief, trusting God to do his part. What we find in Christianity is that it's not 50-50, okay? I'm like harp on it again for a second. This is not 50-50. This is not you do some things and God does some things is this, it's we do 100%. And God, we choose, meaning, what does that mean? We choose a relationship with him, we trust him to fulfill the relationship. It's kind of a misnomer that it's 100%. We choose the relationship and we trust him to fulfill the relationship. And then he does his 100%. He fulfills the desire of our heart and gives us an eternal relationship with him. It's not that we do 50 and God does 50. It's not that God does 90 and we do 10. It's not that we do 0.01% of his work and then we enter the kingdom. We can't. If we do, this is actually how it works. It's not that we don't do anything. It's that if we do anything that's God's responsibility, we will not enter the kingdom of God. He needs to do 100% of his work, but we need to give 100% of ourselves to him. That's our work. Surrender. Because as much as we give to him is how much he can redeem of us. Trust, in your notes, then, is the foundation of a love relationship. Quickly through this part. Generally, I think people are like love. They want love, whether that's romantic love or just a sense of things being well in relationship. But what people find it hard to have or pursue is trust. Our society is trying to accomplish a love relationship without the foundation of trust. It's the minimum amount of security, hoping for the maximum amount of love. And we get disappointed because we have founded relationships, because we haven't founded relationships on trust, we found them often on suspicion, or on just getting something. And suspicion can never allow the giving and receiving of love. The only way that love can be given and received is when there's trust, total trust. 
which is surrender, giving yourself up. The issue that our society faces is we need a more solid foundation. I mean, this is key. We need a more solid foundation of trust in our relationship with God. Okay, this is why it matters for everybody. In our relationship with God so that we can then go into less stable relationships, which are human relationships. When we're secure, we know who we are. And then out of that place of security, we can stay vulnerable and engaged even if the place we're in or the relationships we're in are dangerous. It's the miracle of being a Christian. Trusting God, finding my security and my significance in God allow me to go to places where I may never find it. If you were here when Greg was here, um, or actually, no, I told this story last week, Greg's story. He told the story about, really quickly, how uh, he and his wife, Debbie, were at a church service, and a guy who they did not know came up to him and said, hey, I'm from out of town, I don't know anybody, I have no place to stay, and they said, yeah, yeah, come stay in our house, and he stayed for a week, and then after a week, he up and left with their car and her purse, and as the story goes, you remember that, if you were here, that that happened, and as the story goes, Greg doesn't know what to do, but their house is a wreck and their car is gone, and so he calls the police. He doesn't even really know the guy, right? He just let them stay with him. And the cop comes, and they're going through, and the police officer says, well, Mr. Mitchell, I hope you learn your lesson, right? Which is a pretty understandable thing to say, right? I mean, he's getting the story. He's like, you let some random person come stay in your house for a week. You left them unattended. They took your van. Like, what do you expect? So he says, I hope you learned your lesson. And, and Greg says it in that moment. I just didn't tell this part last week. He says that in that moment, he looked at Debbie and he says, no, we didn't. He says, you see, we have the freedom now to be taken advantage of. We have the freedom to be taken advantage of. He just looks weak. He just looks like he doesn't know what he's doing to the cop. But he says, no, I didn't learn anything. I haven't learned any lessons. I'm not going to change anything I do. I have the freedom to be taken advantage of. We have the freedom. This is, we have the freedom to be misunderstood. Because when you, when you know who you are, it doesn't matter anymore. You have the freedom to be taken advantage of and misunderstood when it's your choice, right? I'm free. It's just money, for example, in that case. It's just money. It's just what people think. People are fickle anyway. They're going to steal things even if I don't, if I protect everything. They're going to, think things even if I don't do something. We have freely received, so now we can freely give without any kind of rule. In conclusion, in your notes, when we struggle to trust God, rule keeping is the only thing that remains. As we, tr- as we choose trust, God gives grace, and grace captures Jesus' provision for relationship. It's the way we can have a relationship with God. It's all based on grace. Grace enables us to relate to God and others on the basis of forgiveness and, this, and spirit empowering instead of on performance and, excuse me, and rules. We breathe in forgiveness and grace. This is how it works. We breathe in forgiveness and grace, and we exhale the fruit of the Spirit kindness, the love of God. We breathe in who God is and we exhale who he is to the people around us. Even laws, if you thought we weren't going to say this, even laws become transformed from, keep, from rules to keep to ways to express love. We keep the law, this is clear in the New Testament, we keep the law, but for an entirely different reason. It's not motive, if it's not now, it's motivated by love not by trying to earn acceptance or a reward, whether that be from other people or from God. When love, when you receive love, 
the natural thing is to give love back. And the way that we give love back is like Jesus said, doing his will. In your notes, there's a table. It should be right on this page. Rule-based versus grace-based, this kind of thing. If you have a rule-oriented identity, identity as in who you think you are, you might find this part interesting. If you have a rule-oriented identity, God will be viewed, you will view God as a demanding master, never quite happy. You will sense that God is never satisfied with you. If you have a relational identity, who you are in Christ, then God will become a loving father to you. Same God, even doing some of the same actions, but you will see, you will see it in an entirely different way. What will God's expectations be? It will move, his expectations for you, will move from perfect rule keeping to genuine trust. That's all that's going on. We think God's demanding, but he's just inviting us to trust. There's no other agenda, as we talked about last week. He wants a loving, trusting relationship with you, and that's actually as deep as it gets. That's it. Security is built on mercy. It allows you to have peace because you're already loved and accepted. Security and significance, okay? So how do you get it? Security is built on mercy. It allows you to have peace because you're already loved and accepted. You, I mean, this is, the, this is Christianity. You're looking for security, but you already have it. That's tough. That's a tough road to walk. It takes time. It takes a lot of brokenness. It takes letting go of things. But the truth is, that's the answer. You already have been loved and accepted. Significance moves us from personal achievement, which is somebody that's hungry for significance. They're hungry for personal achievement. It moves them from personal achievement to spirit-empowered love. They are active. They can be active, but it's from a place that's not their own. It's from a place that's motivated by love for others. Where it becomes, it, it becomes not, looking, not looking at what I've accomplished, but looking at what I can give to others. That's it. Whether you're recognized or not. What a better way to become significant than to try to achieve things for yourself. This, this, I believe this is in your notes. If it's not, it's in the personal study. When you're built, when you receive security and significance, you no longer, we no longer, see leaders as adversarial, which is what happens in the world, where we just want their position or we mistrust them. Instead, we're grateful and we're responsive to them. Instead of constantly looking for approval, am I in or am I out? Okay, this is how we function in groups. Am I in or am I out? When you're secure in the Father's love, you know who you are in Him. You're just not affected in the same way, no matter what happens. With your coworkers, instead of being competitive, we can be cooperative. We can see someone else promoted instead of us and be happy for them. This is how you can follow Jesus in the workplace. People can know that about you. The future changes. The future goes from being about karma, hoping that we're good enough for a reward, and the future becomes about blessing. This feels too good to be true. Where we receive the gift of eternal life, where the future takes on just a feeling of blessing. That the only thing I have coming to me is eternal blessing, not because of anything I've done, but because of God. And the poor, this may not be all of us, but for many, many people, we no longer look at the poor in a condescending way we begin to have compassion and humility for in the fact that we have nothing that hasn't come from God. Nothing. We are all the same. In your notes, Jesus' grace is the source. Remember, that's what we talked about the first week, from which we receive and give God's love. The result is a level of righteousness that rule-keeping can never produce, 
2 Corinthians. God is able to make all grace abound to you so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. I mean, what is Paul talking about? At all times, you have everything you need. You'll abound in every good work. He's saying it's done. You have everything you need. So in closing, is Jesus the hero of your life story? That's the question that the book ends with. Is Jesus the hero of your life story or do you still want to be the hero of your life story? Have you received his grace, truly received it? How do you know if you've received mercy and grace? Just think about this as we end. How do you know? As you look back at your notes and that table, can you relate more to the, to the, ident, to the relational identity or the rule identity? Be honest with yourself. Which one in every, any given moment would characterize who you are? Am I living under rules again? Am I trying to achieve something? Am I just ambitious? Am I just looking for security in anything and anyone? Let me remember again in that moment what's already true through the work of Jesus for me. He's given me perfect security and perfect significance. And the answer to my problems is not to find them, it's to go deeper into him that I might accept that it's true about me already. Thank you for listening to the Jubilee Montreal podcast. For more information on Jubilee Montreal, visit us online at www.jblmontreal.org.